Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Stephanie, how are you doing? Doing great, Steve. This is the part of term where it's really, really busy. So I hope I'm not driving my team and my students crazy, but otherwise things are good. What about you? Well, I, I went back to my hometown of Philadelphia last week for Thanksgiving. We had a really good time, ate a lot. I, I tried to avoid overeating. Uh, I failed miserably in the attempt. And uh, it was good to see family. My daughter flew in from Los Angeles. My brother flew in from Oklahoma. Everybody else pretty much was there. I got to meet my niece's boyfriend. I got to meet my brother's girlfriend's daughter. So it was all, you know, we had some new traditions, new food added to the table. We didn't subtract any food from the table. So the table was just getting heavier and heavier. But we squeezed into my mother's uh, apartment in uh, right off of Independence Square. So we were walking past uh, Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell all the time. And, it, and we had good weather for the most part. So it, it, for a pandemic Thanksgiving, uh, I'll, I'd give it a thumbs up. Mm, I really hope I get to experience a proper American Thanksgiving one day. It's on my bucket list. Just let me know. I'll invite you uh, to one of my family ones. Uh, we, we do it every year. And what more the, the more the merrier. Thank you. And how was the, the return back home with the PCR test and everything? Was it smooth? Yeah, we have now a relationship with the PCR testers in Philadelphia. <laughs> this is our second time through this. And they keep on not sending the results to my wife, which is kind of strange. But we, we got the results. It was not a problem. We've got it down pretty easily. Got to the border. You know, the Arrive Can app means they, they get all of our stuff before we get to the border. So that works out pretty seamlessly. And the, the biggest surprise at the border was how amused the, the border guy was that I bought pineapple cider at the Reading Terminal Market in Philadelphia. I never, he's like, uh, how does it taste? I was like, I don't know yet. <laughs> it's an experiment. I'll, maybe I'll save a can for you since you're coming to my house for uh, a post-conference poker game. That's right. That sounds interesting. Pineapple cider. Yeah. He asked alcohol, how, how much alcohol was in it? And I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> Some. <laughs> Anyway, we should get to the, the big issues of the week since the last time we met. And the first one is we actually no longer have an acting CDS. We have a CDS. We only have one. We don't have two. So uh, we had the prime minister make the decision. We had Minister Anand make uh, a little bit of a speech about it. We had Wayne Eyre, the general heir, speak about the new job. Got to be on Mercedes Stevenson's show on, on Sunday to talk about it. So what are your take on, on this eventuality finally appearing. <laughs> I think both of us were eager to see this question settled. 
one way or another, we just wanted a decision to be made on the CDS. And I think at least as far as McDonald is concerned, it was the right thing to send that clear signal that mm -hmm. he was not welcome back in the role. And there have been a lot of announcements in the last couple of weeks coming out of D&D, whether it's this appointment of the CDS or whether it's the formal apology that is expected for December 13th. Mm -hmm for uh, victims and survivors of sexual misconduct and assault, and then just a host of announcements, which is consistent with what General Eyre has said in his, in his speech, namely that there would be a series of initiatives mm -hmm. that would be coming out in the next few weeks. So I think we can expect this regular of announcements on key decisions and initiatives and to start with a more regular momentum of uh, decisions being made and communicated. I also like the, the tone struck in the statement. So there was a, a written statement that was circulated and also a, a short video, which you probably saw on Twitter. And the fact that there's, you know, no ceremony given the circumstances and, you know, clearly signaling that the status quo is not an option yet approaching this issue with humility and compassion just was the, the right kind of sober tone that you would expect for this moment in time, as far as the Canadian Armed Forces is concerned and the tasks that the leadership is facing. And then, you know, as I was listening to, to the speech and, and this reference to humility and compassion, I was just thinking, how do you train that kind of inclusive leadership <laughs> all the way down? And that's part of the challenge ahead. Now mm -hmm. we're introducing a new and revised ethos and a new leadership concept for the military. And the leadership is sending these types of signals, but then how do you integrate that and embed that as part of the, the culture? So I think this is a, a big and an ambitious task, but at least as far as the, the tone of the speech, I think it struck the right chord. What were your initial reactions to this announcement? Well, relief that, that we finally moving onwards. I think that Anand really struck the right chord in some of her, what she talked about, because she was asked about McDonald and she was pretty explicit that she found McDonald's letter where he demanded his job back to be a real problem that the documents that came out about the change in the order of council or whatever it's called made it explicit that the letter that McDonald used was part of the reason why that he's not around any longer, that he, you know, showed a level of entitlement and a level, a level of um, hostility to civilian control of the military, that letter, and that the civilians did the right thing by saying, well, that's the way you feel, then you're gone. I mean, he was going to be gone anyway, but by making explicit reference to how that letter did damage to his case, I think that was really important. So I think the message of bringing the air in was important, but I also think the message of how McDonald was ushered out the door was also important. I think the big challenge facing Minister Nanda ahead is that there are elements to the, the calf that are going to be really hard to, to overcome. And one of them is the sense that the military should handle its own affairs and they should just be told where to go, whether that's to BC or Ukraine or wherever. And the reality is, is that no, that's not good enough that the military is going to have to get used to losing autonomy, that it's going to have more civilian oversight and input into decision making. So one of the announcements that was, that was rolled out this past uh, couple of weeks, one of the things that we talked about before was that Air had listened to our podcast and called me to talk about changes in the personnel processes. And, and that's something that was, that was announced in the past week uh, in an email that was circulated. And what's important about those changes are a couple of things to note. One is, again, he had told me uh, that the 360 review, which had been 
sort of advisory before would now be part of the, the promotion process. And it would be not just individuals that the promotion candidate wanted to have evaluate them, but an anonymous random selection of people that had been above that person, beside that person and below that person giving feedback. And so that's a really important reform that wasn't waiting for our board to make a decision on. Louise Arbor, the Supreme Court Justice, retired Supreme Court Justice, who's doing a review right now. So they're moving ahead, making decisions that are going to affect the next wave of generals and admirals who are promoted. That was something he told me a couple of weeks ago. What he didn't tell me a couple of weeks ago, or at least I didn't notice or point out, is that they're now going to have at least one civilian on these promotion boards. And this is kind of surprising me. I would have expected D&D to have representation on these promotion boards before that. But at least this is happening now that there'll be a, at least one civilian voice in the room when these candidates are being considered. It will still be up to the Minister of National Defense to approve or not approve the choices that are made by the CDS when the CDS makes these promotion decisions based on his team putting together these packages of promotion materials. And so it's, I think uh, Minister Nan will still have to take those packages quite seriously. One of the lingering questions I have is how often in the past have those packages gone up and then come back down being rejected or asked for more information, I think. And I hope that in the future that the, there's, a, you know, there's a little more friction on that. That is that there's a little more engagement by the minister's office on these things. But that's something that we'll, we'll see in the future. It'll be interesting to see if we hear anything about that. And for now, I guess some leadership stability is, is a good idea. I think there was a lot of speculation with regards to you know, maybe the VCDS mm -hmm. or General Carignan being offered the, the role as, as CDS, but this signals a preference for leadership stability, letting everyone have a chance to settle into their role and accomplish some things before being shifted around once more. Yeah, I think, I think it can't be underestimated the fact that we've had you know, half dozen vice chiefs for the past five or six years, the vice chief's job is in part to be the administrative officer of the military, to take care of making sure that whatever initiatives that are launched by the chief get implemented and make sure that implementation works out. And if you're keeping on changing the chief, the vice chief, then that doesn't happen. And so if if Alan or Carignan had been elevated to CDS this week, then everybody we started from scratch, there would have to be handovers. And so I think in the medium term, it makes sense to keep air around. I don't think his record has been perfect. I think he admits that quite clearly that there have been mistakes made. These are hard, hard challenges ahead, but I think uh, he's shown a willingness to consult, a willingness to listen, and willingness to admit mistakes. And that's so rare in this town, that is Ottawa, for folks to admit mistakes. And that's the only way you can learn stuff. So I, I think I think it makes sense for the, the medium term. And then maybe, you know, a year or two or three from now, somebody else will be will be in a position where they can succeed him. But I don't think the, the idea of adding female officer to this and then stirring is setting the calf or that person up for success. So I, I think uh, a little stability for right now makes sense. So with the team of Minister Anand, General Ayer, and the Deputy Minister Jody Thomas, we'll see them together on Monday with this formal apology to all members of the defense team who've been affected by sexual assault and misconduct. And for those who are interested, the apology will take place virtually at 1 p.m. Eastern time on December 13 and will be live streamed on the Canadian Armed Forces Facebook page. And uh, if you're not able to make that event live, it will be on YouTube after it airs. I was asked by somebody on Twitter, why is it uh, Jody Thomas, as in addition to the minister, shouldn't the minister's apology cover the civilian side of things? And my first reaction to that is that I think it makes sense to have all three, that the chief has to speak for, on behalf of the military, the minister has to speak on behalf of the government, but it makes sense for Jody Thomas to speak on behalf of her side of the house because D&D &D has not performed perfectly over the past 
five or 10 or 20 or 30 years on these issues. There should have been alarm bells ringing when Jody pushed out of the uh, out of the Deschamps r- report, implementing as she indicated when she was on our podcast last spring. And th- that didn't ring alarm bells. Now, that might have been because who the Minister of National Defense was at the time. But we know that there are problems on both sides of the, of the building downtown. And so it makes sense for, for her to apologize, makes sense for uh, air to apologize, it makes sense for Anon to do so. Um, so I think this is an important event. It's obviously not going to solve anything, but it's a, it's a step. It's an important step that people have been calling for. And it's this whole process is going to take not days, but not months, but years. And it's not going to be just one thing, but a variety of efforts along a variety of axes, as the military would say, or a bunch of different pillars. I'm sure there'll be a PowerPoint slide somewhere showing the different strategies and different agencies that are responsible for different aspects of, of not just cultural change, but institutional change and ultimately behavioral change. And one may have expected uh, defense or even personnel issues and the ongoing challenge of uh, sexual misconduct in the CAF and the related journey of culture change to appear in the speech from the throne, but it didn't. Uh, do you have any hot takes after listening to the speech from the throne? It's hard to have a hot take when the defense is pretty much entirely ignored. I didn't really see there much you know, much being discussed about it that really resonated. It was obviously more more focused on the economy. I was focused on, you know, getting through and past the pandemic. The amount of stuff spent on foreign affairs was was kind of minimal. Although, again, they talk about climate change, like climate change is an international relations issue as much as domestic. So when I read the speech, there's stuff in it that makes sense. But for our podcast, there wasn't much meat uh, for us to chew over. You know, the Canada must, you know, reinforce international peace and security and rule of law and democracy in the face of authoritarianism, great power competition, sure. I was keen to see the reference to supply chains simply because that's a, one of the focuses of my next grant application for the, for the, for, uh, the CDSN. But this part of the speech was just very vague, except for reference to increasing the foreign assistance budget. Other than that, there's just really nothing there. Um, mm-hmm. It makes sense electorally. People people don't vote on foreign policy and defense policy, but it would have been nice to have some references to something a little more specific and certainly towards defense, given that that's been such a weighty part of of what's been going on in in the bubble here in Ottawa and just it completely slides by. As far as uh, throne speeches go, this one seemed particularly short to me. And you're right, the international policy aspects of it were rather vague. And uh, I think we'll need to await the mandate letters for more clarity and precision on international issues in defense, though it is much easier to anticipate, I think, what will be in the defense mandate letter compared to, let's say, the foreign ministers. And then we had this first speech from Minister Anand at the Halifax Security Forum, and she emphasized uh, the importance of strong, secure, and engaged and its continued relevance. So I I guess that's an indication that we may not have another (laughs) interview (laughs) and probably some signaling when it comes to uh, the budget, maintaining some stability in terms of uh, planned expenditures and new equipment. Yeah, I mean, I, that was exactly the thing that I was struck by in the in her her discussion thus far is that there's not going to be a new defense review. I would like to see one, but we're not going to see it. I, and in some ways, it makes sense to me. Ordinarily, I would like to see a defense review every three or four years because things do change. But I know it's a massive amount of time and effort by the people in ADM policy, the, the part of the D&D that focuses on policy issues. And given that they're very much seized by culture change and all the other things that are going on relative to the, the abuse of power 
power and sexual misconduct crisis in the CAF, it might take time away from that. I do think we need to think about the future and strategize about that and develop, you know, revise the current working document. But right now, I think the next six months, certainly they must be seized with the priority of the moment, which is this crisis, as Ayers referred to it, existential crisis facing the Indian Armed Forces. So I do think Anand, when she has been speaking the past few weeks, I, I, she really hasn't struck a wrong chord yet, but time will tell about what actually happens, what, what they actually end up doing. But I think I think they've gotten off to a good start of this next government. Uh, I know I was impatient. I'm sure the people who are more directly affected than by the stuff are impatient. But some of these choices are really difficult and they have to figure out how to build these new institutions. That way they endure past Anon, endure past air. I know I've heard from some of my friends who have contacts in the military. And there are people, you know, in various units who are saying, oh, this will just blow over. And it's like, we got to change this part of the culture that this this is just a temporary crisis. No, we've got to change how the CAF operates. We got to change how D&D operates. We got to change how the Minister of National Defense's office operates. So that way this becomes an enduring change in the CAF, not just a storm to be weathered. Storm to be weathered. On to our next segment. Yes, I think so. The thing of the day for the CAF is not what's going on in Ukraine, but really what's going on in British Columbia. The, the catastrophic storms have done so much damage. So, of course, the CAF gets called out to do a variety of things. There's apparently at least 12 planes and helicopters operating to move people around, to rescue animals and people, to bring in equipment that there's... The last count I saw was 500 troops with potentially many more coming to, you know, do the sandbagging, to provide logistical support, to try to help connect Vancouver again to the rest of Canada. I think you're, you're right to start by listing the military tasks involved because we see chickens and sandbags on the news, but really the scope is, is much wider than that when you when you think about all of the things that the the CAF are doing you know by air and on land and so that's where i would start as well in terms of highlighting just the the range of tasks that uh, the CAF are, are called upon to perform in these types of circumstances and you know more broadly speaking i think it raises the question once again of this trend we're seeing when it comes to the uptick and this rise of, of demand on the CAF for responding to domestic emergencies and to emergencies like these floods and, and landslides. And I can't help but, but to think back again to the, the speech that General Eyre gave at the Kingston Conference on International Security with regards to that. And as we see more demands and expectations placed on Canada on the international front, and we saw this relative to peacekeeping uh, yesterday with an explicit uh, request made on Canada on behalf of the United States, or when it, whether it comes to more intense operational tempo domestically for floods, fires, pandemic response, you know, something has to give in the long term and that has to be built into the, the planning, whether it comes to recruitment or retention or, or training. So this is the current operational priority. But there are longer term questions that need to be raised when it comes to better integrating this trend of more acute domestic emergency responses on behalf of the CAF with the other priorities that the CAF concurrently pursues. Absolutely. I mean, Air, before he was CDS as chief of the army, spoke, I want to say, 
January before the pandemic struck, saying that that this was uh, the increased pace of operations due to more and more emergencies was a challenging readiness. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to start thinking about is thinking less about how these domestic emergencies challenge readiness and more about how the international operations get in the way of domestic emergency operation. That is, we need to think a little bit more about changing the priorities. And this is this is part of the large cultural change the CAF may have to face about the CAF is not really about, you know, putting the special operator on the pointy edge of the, the spear at the top of our, our minds and a focal point of the entire operation as, as a model for what a, a member of the CAF is. But instead, the model member of the CAF is the person who's helping the community is, is you know, filling standbags out is our nurses going into elder care facilities are the people who are doing the hard work helping out Canadians because it turns out the pandemic and these storms are hurting Canadians far more than the, what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, more than what ISIS is doing either in Syria or anywhere else in the world, or at least in harming Canadians it is. And so I think we need to start thinking a little bit more about not just talking about how this is a priority and changing what are the priorities in terms of the order of them. Because even last week when Air was talking about this, he still in part emphasized how much this is a threat to readiness, which again suggests domestic operations are important because they get in the way of the day job. And I think we need to do more to change that sense. Uh, we need to change the incentives so that way those who engage in these domestic operations get the same kind of rewards and leave and that kind of stuff as people who engage in foreign operations. We need to change promotions so that these things are valued because this stuff is as or actually probably more important to Canadians than the, the, the foreign game. And I say this as an international relations scholar who cares a lot about the foreign game. And so I just think that the combined events, of the pandemic and the BC floods should shake things up. And along with this extended crisis we've had in the CAF, think about how do we change the culture, not just to, you know, keep the people feeling, you know, treated better, more humanely and, and not having as met, being abused, but think about what the CAF is for. And that might shape both the readiness for domestic operations and who are the role models in the, in the Canadian Armed Forces. And it's a big ask, but I think the world via climate change and increased pandemics are telling us what the bigger security threats are and that we need to change how we prioritize things. And uh, you raised red readiness. So this will be my... Uh lame segue attempt. Are you ready for your conference on Friday? I'm probably as ready for my conference on Friday as yours is the next week. The CDSN is having the, the year ahead on Friday at the War Museum. We still have some tickets to sell for it. It isn't it? a combined in-person and online event, both participants, that is the speakers, but we'll, some will be in person, some will be online and our audience, some will be in person, some will be online. We will have all the COVID protocols in place to keep things safe in the War Museum. And I'm very excited about it. We have one of our speakers, Megan McKenzie, a professor from Simon Fraser, is our podcast interview for this week. She talks with me about what culture change actually means and the obstacles to it. She'll be part of a panel that you're moderating on Friday at the year ahead. That's one of our panels. We got two different panels on gray zone attacks as the Chinese, Russian, Iranian, North Korean, whoever else is attacks upon Canada that are short of war, cyber, disinformation, things like that. We also have a panel on domestic or emergency operations, folks who actually study that, these things. So they'll tell us what we should learn from the recent events and how we should need to think about these events going forward. And we have a, a fireside chat on Islamophobia and national security, where we've asked this new organization in Canada, Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security Canada, to help organize this, uh, this segment of the event. And so that will be a really interesting conversation. So it's going to be a full day out at the War Museum. And I'm glad that you can join us for that. And then you're organizing a an event for your Minds Network 
the RASNSA. Uh, so tell us a little about your event next week in Ottawa. Yeah, it's on Thursday, Friday in Ottawa, like you hybrid event. We have some people attending in person and then we will be live streaming the conference. And the main event really is on Thursday, December 9th. We'll be having two roundtables. The first roundtable is on how the pandemic cooperation, both through the prism of international organizations and how they adapted to the pandemic environment, mm -hmm. uh, but we'll also touch on, you know, some of the other ramifications like vaccine diplomacy and, you know, moving international symmetry online for a good part of the pandemic and how that's affected interstate relations at a time where, you know, great power competition is increasing. Our second roundtable touches more directly on the theme of great power competition, and that will be in the afternoon. One other thing that I want to highlight is that we have a keynote speaker, and that's Ambassador Carrie Buck, our former permanent representative at NATO. So she will be delivering our keynote speech, and I'm very proud also to announce the student panel. So we held a best paper competition this year and our three winners will be delivering presentations so that our network can be exposed to what our emerging scholars have been doing this year. Excellent, excellent papers. And I can't wait to feature those students on the panel. And I'm obviously very excited about the networking components because it's so hard to do networking online. And a lot of uh, students and emerging scholars have not been able to meet their colleagues in the security and defense community. And so it's a great opportunity finally to make face-to-face -face contact with professors from across the country and also folks who work at the Department of National Defense and the Kenya Armed Forces. So a small, safe, but in-person uh, network event is planned to cap off the day on uh, Thursday, December 9th. I'm really much looking forward to it. And I'm I'm glad that you're attending our conference as well, Steve. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. I think that, that your network has been doing incredible things for the past couple of years, and we've certainly learned from what you do, but how you guys do it. So glad to have you in town, and I'm glad to, to be able to take advantage of, of your event to grab several of your speakers, including yourself, for a, a poker game at Shea Sadman. You'll be making the cocktails, I'll be making the baked goods, and providing <laughs> the beer. And uh, I'm looking very much forward to that. So thanks again, Steph, for taking your time to chat today. Uh, it's great to, I got to see you a couple of weeks ago for recording some of the interviews for upcoming podcasts. And okay. I get to see you twice in the next couple of weeks. So this is going to be really strange to, to actually see you in person so much. Yeah, it almost feels like we're turning a corner, but then there's this new variant. Yeah, I think the va new variant is going to occupy our conversations in the, in the weeks ahead. The only thing I'll note for our audience is South Africa noticed this variant first. They didn't have it first. And that, that's because they had good signs. So perhaps we, we might, might not want to be punishing the South Africans and the rest of South Africa for doing the science better, faster than in Europe. But that's just a little editorial bit. Have a good week, Steph. I'll see you on Friday. And I hope to see uh, some of our audience at the year ahead, either in person or online. We'll now have the interview with uh, Megan McKenzie, and then we'll have, I'll have a couple of recommendations at the end for distractions amidst all this madness. Excellent. All right. So today on Battle Rhythm, we have Megan McKenzie, a Canadian returning from far, far away. She was in Australia for a long time, but is now back at Simon Fraser University. She is the Simon's Chair in International Law and Human Security. And Megan, thanks for joining us today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Megan's going to be one of our featured speakers at the Year Ahead event in December. And so we thought we'd talk to her and, and get a, a preview of what she's going to be saying there. She's been in the media a lot the past year. She didn't expect when she came back to Canada to be on the Rolodexes of all the media people to talk about gender in the military. But since she's written books on it and has much expertise, she's been consulted a lot about the crisis confronting the Canadian Armed Forces and, and D&D in general. So what are you going to be telling us uh, when you come to Ottawa to the War Museum in December? Well, I think I'm on a panel talking about culture change, so uh, I, I'm really interested to hear what the other panels have to say, <laughs> but I feel like everyone wants to, to talk about culture change right now. Everyone knows that that's what needs to happen. I think there's less consensus on what that actually means and how to do it, but I think it's really around culture change. How do we get to this point in terms of toxic military culture? And what are the sticking points and what are the obstacles to cultural change and not just male dominated institutions, but, you know, hyper masculine institutions. Okay, so I guess that's the starting point, which is we we talked a, a little while ago about this, this larger phenomenon and that there's so much we can learn from outside the military, but there are aspects that are distinct to the military. And so obviously the hyper masculine part of it is exaggerating with military compared to, let's say, academia or, or other institutions. So if we want to change the culture of the calf, how do we deal with that? So I think I think that's the starting point exactly to, to know that, well, there are some unique aspects, but that it's not the only institution. We also have police forces, we have fire departments, we have lots of places that are, are dominated mm -hmm. by by men, but and, and also have a, a history of having sort of a macho culture. For me, I actually think there's quite a lot of research on how to change culture. And, and most of it comes from sociologists, it comes from people in business schools who really study you know, leadership and how to motivate. Mm -hmm. um, because culture change doesn't just, it very, very rarely sort of just evolves naturally. It's not that, you know, sort of everyone looks around and says, oh, things aren't working here. We need to change it organically. It takes often external expertise and most people don't like culture change. It doesn't feel great. It often disempowers people who have historically held power. And so, it's not a fun process for, for, for many involved. And you raised a couple of key issues there. One is it disempowers people. So in thinking about the hypermasculine culture of the calf, one of the things that I've observed, and you know, again, I'm not an expert on gender in the military, but it's something I've observed is we've had this valorization of special operations in Canada and, and, and everywhere else too, right? You know, American police forces now look like they're about to storm Osama bin Laden's headquarters, right? They, they all dress like it they, in our TV shows, but in the military, we've sort of have the special operations as being the sort of the, not just the pointy stem of the stick, but the people that we most admire and model ourselves after at the same time that the word special is in their name, they're special for a reason, which is that they're not the average, they're not the normal. And they, well, I would argue that they're probably not what we should be emphasizing as the model because they are more exclusive, more male. We tend to think of those are the folks who the rules don't apply to. But if the rules don't apply to them, but we all want to be like the people who the rules don't apply to, does that make sense as a culture that has discipline at its heart? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the it's the valorization of, you know, the combat roles, whether it's special forces in the U.S. or whether it's combat units in the Canadian Defense Forces. I mean, I do think that part of it is the sort of romantic idea of what the military does. I mean, a lot of the day-to-day -day business of the Canadian Defense Forces is not that exciting. It's a normal workplace where people <laughs> project manage and you know, do very familiar things to civilians. And so 
But that's that kind of goes against this idea of military exceptionalism. So there is this emphasis on combat units, I think partly to uphold this idea of the military is exceptional. I definitely think there's a problem with that, that emphasis on, on combat units. And it also, you know, perpetuates this idea that our greatest threat is some sort of external military, you know, armed force. We, we've seen this week and I mean, for years now, some of the greatest existential threats to Canadians come in the form of climate change, pandemics. Mm -hmm. And so we don't need combat operations for those kinds of things. Sure, we need some military equipment. We've seen that in the rescues that are happening in my province right now. It's helpful to have helicopters <laughs> that are easily deployable, but you don't need combat uh, weapons to uh, to help in that situation. So there's a kind of a disconnect between the kind of mythology and the perception of what honorable soldiers do and, and some of the day-to-day -day business, I think, of, of service members. I think that goes to recruitment. I think we have to change the way we sell the Canadian Defence Forces to potential recruits and to be honest with them about what are the kinds of jobs that we're doing, what is it that we as a society want our military to do. You know, we've had these conversations before. I think this is a bigger conversation we need to have as Canadians to sort of recognize that this idea of the CAF as a peacekeeping force is actually quite outdated from what the, the CAF actually does. And we, we kind of post Afghanistan have to have a bigger conversation about what is the purpose of the Canadian Defence Forces? How do we want those resources used? And how are we going to value that? And so I do think there's, so, there's such a a distance between the average civilian and their engagement with the, the CAF, to be honest mm -hmm. here. And it's not, it's not an ignorance. It's just a real lack of a, a kind of an apathy or, or, or an assured sense that, that things are fine. You know, mm -hmm. whereas I think in the U S there's, there's more of a, an, an investment in terms of what the, the U.S. military is doing more of an awareness. I think that's an obstacle to accountability in some ways here, that the most Canadians assume that things are fine. And when they mm. become aware of something like sexual assault, it's so counter to their perception of, of what the, the institution is or does that I think it's hard to kind of reconcile. And that's a, a real challenge because the, the military has done a, a good job for years to describe themselves as being these professionals who, you know, integrity, honor, service, all that kind of stuff. But we've had so much dishonorable behavior. And so the question then is, if the organization defines itself as honorable, but has tolerated the stuff, how do you change that kind, that aspect of the culture, which is either looking past or excusing all the sexual misconduct and all this abuse of power? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the million dollar question. I think it starts from a recognition that actually dysfunction has been baked into the institution from day one. And that's an uncomfortable thing to say in this context, because we're so kind of groomed to believe that it's an honorable institution. And of course, there's honorable service members, but sexual misconduct has always been part of the CAF as well as other defense forces. Hazing, misconduct has been regular feature. And so in some ways, coming at it from that understanding is going to be more effective than trying to think, oh, well, it's always been an honorable institution. We've just had these blips in dysfunction. I think those are two different kinds of approaches. And so for me, it's sort of recognizing, look, there's been some problems with the institution from day one. For me, I guess it's important to note that like, 
you know, of course, I, I hope that my work can make life better for service members, but my number one goal in my work is not to make the Catholic a higher functioning institution, you know, like I'm interested in patriarchy and ending patriarchy. <laughs> and I see the, the CAF and other militaries as an important institution in upholding patriarchy. So I'm interested in how power functions within the military, the kinds of conversations we as a society have about our military, the way we excuse dysfunctional behavior. I'm interested in that because I think it sheds light on patriarchy in ways that helps us to dismantle it. That doesn't mean that I'm inherently anti-military, although I would like to see no <laughs> defense forces. I collaborate with service members. I respect and work with service members, but I think it's really important to clarify, you know, where I'm coming from and mm -hmm. sort of my motivation for my work. Yeah, I, I guess that that's a real challenge. Is, well, there's lots of real challenges here. There, there are a lot of real challenges here about what is the role of the military in society? Part of what we were just talking about, whether they, you know, how much involvement they should be in domestic emergency operations, right? We could have some other agency do that, but I am a more pragmatic person. And I know that as hard as it is to reform the CAF, I may be far harder still to try to whip up a new organization that can uh, respond to emergencies around the country, in part because we have all this federal provincial jurisdiction problems that at least the CAF is hammered out over the course of time, whereas a, a FEMA type agency would be just something that would have you know tremendous difficulties. On the other hand, maybe that's easier than dismantling pa patriarchy, but I think could this, it could be, it could, you know, I, I dismantling patriarchy is, is, you know, one of those phrases that, that catches people's attention, but ultimately if we want people to be treated as people and not as, you know, subordinates, how do you do that in an, or, or an organization that is defined by hierarchy? So can you have hierarchy without patriarchy? Well, I mean, none of us exist outside patriarchy, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's an aspiration. It's a feminist objective, but it's not like I can sort of say like, oh, come live with me here in my, in my patriarchy free world. So I'm not delusional about it, but I, I think that for me as a, as a feminist scholar, that has to be at the forefront of my mind all the time. And I'm sort of motivated by scholars like Carol Cohn and Bell Hooks kind of thinking mm -hmm. like, you know, if you don't keep that at the forefront of your mind, I think you can easily become sort of, you just lose sight and then, and then effectively just work to strengthen existing institutions that mm -hmm. maybe aren't functioning properly. So that's just, I guess, you know, I do still think there's tactical, like uh, otherwise I wouldn't do the work I'm doing, right? Like I would just be doing some feminist philosophy or something. I do still think there's practical ways you can improve. I think mm -hmm. that for me, like raising awareness of sexual assault and supporting victims makes their lives better and, and can, mm -hmm. you know, produce real change. I respect service members that make the decision to serve. I don't think that they should be left in the lurch by feminists who are inherently anti-military. Like, I just don't think that you can think, for me, it's not that black and white. You used to talk to before about if you change a culture, you're disempowering people. And we're living at a time where a lot of people feel disempowered simply because we're calling them out in their behavior. Mm -hmm. If we're actually really taking power away from people, then the fight gets harder still. Yeah, well, I mean, the first step to cultural change for me is to tell the people in power, you are not the people who understand how to change culture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that just empowers them inherently. So I think there's a lot of senior CAF leaders who think they are going to initiate this culture change and that they know how to do it. And I think that is a real point. And that's, you know, 
you don't have sort of other workplaces that need major cultural reform where you sort of put it in the hands of leaders like, okay, tell us how culture change should happen and then initiate it. Like that isn't actually how workplace culture usually happens. You usually have some expertise from outside to do some evaluations of culture and then and lead it. And of course, existing leaders have to be part of that. But the first step to culture change is really to let people know you're not the experts mm. and you need to give up some of this power and be willing to accept some solutions and some mm -hmm. policy changes that you may not like and may not benefit you. That's going to be really rough for not just power, but identity, because you're telling people you're not the experts. You're not, you don't have exclusive expertise, that there are other people who might know more than you. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it on, on Twitter and elsewhere that when you start talking about military stuff, that the first question you get is, have you served? Mm -hmm. And that's a direct uh, criticism that, that, you, if you have no military service, have nothing to add to the conversation. And so that that has to change. If not for the folks on Mill Twitter, it has to folks for the folks the folks running the military, both because it's it, it threatens their power, as you suggest, but also threatens their identity, identity conflicts that you know that those those reinforce each other. So what's going on right now is in part the very identity of the people who are at the top of the chain and, and throughout the military that they you know, what are these civilians to tell me what to do? Yeah. I mean, it's all, you know, it's a gendered thing too. It's not just, you know, have you served? It's even if you have served, you know, I've, I've worked with service members who then mm -hmm. it's like, well, how many years did you serve? Did you serve on the front line? You know, all mm -hmm. of these kind of like ways to undercut if, if the message that you have is not really, yeah. I mean, I guess for me, it's, it's not, not to sort of like throw everything up in the air, but I do think it's sort of, we do have to think whether small tweaks and reforms are ultimately just sort of moving deck chairs around, mm -hmm. you know, and I, you know, I'm someone that likes to think about important reforms that can be helpful. But at the same time, if you think about the history of the institution and why it was set up and what its main function is, I do think there needs to be a bigger conversation about whether the existing structure of the military really serves Canada at this moment. And so if we're not willing to have that conversation, it's kind of hard to initiate culture change because it's sort of like, well, what is the culture we want? We don't even know because we haven't had these broader conversations about do we want a, a major institution that is designed to use violence to solve political problems? Like, is that actually in line with the major threats that the Canadians are facing right now? Is there a way we can sort of shift the institution incrementally, you know, yeah. So I guess for me, the, the question of culture change and like, of course there's these reforms that are positive and, you know, things like the apology that, that is meant to be coming. These can all be important moves in the right direction and moving, for example, moving sexual assault cases out of the military justice system for the interim, I think is, is a great short-term move that will support victims. But I, yeah, I'm always interested in having these broader conversations. Mm -hmm. It's very hard. Otherwise, it's like, well, well, what are we shifting towards? You know, you have to have some kind of vision. Well, that these are really tough conversations to have because there are there's the the culture that we face, but there's also competing challenges. Canada is in a geopolitical position where it maybe doesn't need to have a traditional military, but if it wants to play in various circles, whether that's NATO or whatever security arrangements evolve in the Pacific, those are still going to need to have, you know, modern fighter aircraft show up and modern ships, all, all that kind of paraphernalia. So the question is, how to, how will the Canadian military be able to, to sort of do the home game and the, the road game at the same time with the same military and with one culture for all of it? That's really tricky. I don't think we're going to get away from having a military that 
doesn't that sees its purpose as combat but maybe that and i i i i think that's gonna be the hardest thing i, th- I think we're, there's a lot of hard asks and hard, a lot of hard requirements and all of this stuff i think moving the military away from seeing that their day job is combat is is really the biggest challenge because that really gets to identity and it gets to purpose and 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 not just culture, but who who they are and why they are there. And you're going to probably get less consensus on that than on other things that are different from that. Like for me, I just want to see domestic operations elevated in importance, not necessarily to supplant or replace combat, but to be on a more equal footing. That by itself will have an impact on the culture and also just on the daily re- the reality that the pandemic has illustrated and uh, the floods out West have illustrated, just like the firestorm, the, the firestorms and the you know, other disasters we've had. There's a lot to this. To get to something more finite, what is your research these days? What are you working on? Yeah, I'm actually trying to finish a book on sexual assault in the military. (laughs) (laughs) But I've been doing a lot of commentary on it that actually, you know, I'm I'm happy to do and I I enjoy being part of these public conversations. But I also would really like to finish my book. (laughs) So yeah, I'm writing a book that is looking at sexual assault in the military in Australia, Canada, and the U.S., Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit more focused on public conversations. So sort okay. of this question of how do we make sense of like looking at a 30 year period, for example, the fact that sexual misconduct has been endemic in all mm-hmm. three institutions. It's not the exception, it's the rule. And how does the public kind of square that with this idea of, you know, military institutions as the most trusted public institution in all three countries. And that hasn't changed over that period. It's an institution defined by honor, discipline, discipline, order, and yet has had this persistent problem. And so I'm really curious about Mm -hmm. how media covers the problem and how that might shed some light on sort of how it's legitimized, how sexual assault is sort of made to be seen kind of exceptional or Mm -hmm. bad apples problem, but certainly helps smooth out that contradiction between persistent dysfunction Mm -hmm. in our most trusted public institution. I have one question and a comment. The comment first, which is one reason why these institutions are most trusted is simply they're not, they define themselves as not being partisan. And so that allows allows them to write above the partisan institutions. And there was just some stuff that I saw today afloat on the internet about how the United States military is no longer quite as trusted because it's seen as being a little bit more partisan that, you know, your attitudes about it vary depending on whether you're Democrat and Republican and who's in, who's in power in the White House. So I think that's a shared quality amongst all the world's democracies is that the militaries are not seen as partisan. And so therefore they have a higher approval rating because everybody can like them but any other institution either has your party label on it or somebody else's party label on it. So at least a third or, or 40% of the population are going to be upset with that institution at any point in time. So it's very hard for those institutions to become popular. But the question I have is, do you see any differences between the United States, Canada, and Australia that you found in your research that might reveal either important dynamics or different starting points or whatever? You know, one of the things that stuck out in my mind is that I was at seven or eight years ago in the middle of Australia's sexual assault and military crisis. I think it was what David Morrison, General Morrison came out mm-hmm. with a really powerful statement about this will not be tolerated in a very good Australian sort of accent. And mm-hmm. that that went viral. And I just don't know if that led to change or was it just a brief blip of that was great PR, but it didn't really move the needle either within the cat within the Australian Defense Forces or between the Australian Defense Forces mm-hmm. and the public. Yeah, I mean it's a great question. And and you're right, that video went viral. And of course, defense forces across the world watched it and civilians as well. What was kind of ironic, and we know now, is that at the time that he made that statement, he was also sitting on evidence of another scandal and trying to keep keep it under wraps. So it's hard not to be cynical. 
point to do this work. Look, I think the message was still powerful and important, but I can't say that the Australian Defence Forces really dramatically cleaned house and, and did things better following that um, Skype scandal. And that was, a, for those who are listening that don't know, it was a case where a cadet, two cadets were having consensual sex, but the perpetrator was streaming it to his buddies in the room next door without her consent, without the female's consent. And so it brought up a lot of issues around, you know, images and virtual content and cyberbullying that there really wasn't legislation for at the time. So that, that case definitely shaped the landscape in Australia for a long time. You know, there are some big differences. I think one of the biggest differences is that there's such huge congressional oversight and influence in the U.S. And you've had senators like Senator Kristen Gillibrand, who's just been fierce on on this issue. And as a result, the data collected in the U.S. is so much stronger. Like, you know, prior to 2014, look, neither of these three countries kept great data on sexual misconduct. And in fact, they, there really wasn't separate data on sexual misconduct in Australia or Canada prior to sort of 2008. They just kind of lumped in with other forms of misconduct. So showing up to, you know, getting drunk on post, for example, was <laughs> calculated along with side misconduct. Yeah, the congressional oversight has been really positive in the US. We have a much better understanding of the scope of the problem, which posts are the worst, which are the best, you know, trends over time, everything. What's true for Canada and Australia is we still don't really have a great understanding of the problem. The data that's collected is so haphazard and so poor that it almost looks willfully negligent. The the surveys that are conducted biannually are often changed in a way that makes it impossible to compare over time. That's a Canadian problem. That's not just a military problem. I've got my friends who do survey stuff who who go to StatsCan and find that things change and yeah. You just the economic stuff, the data changes and it drives them crazy, but yeah, it also be a little willful as well. Yeah. So you look through it and you sort of think this isn't possible. I mean, an undergrad student could sort of put together a, a better method of data collection than this. Yeah. So I think it's hard to understand the scope of the problem. We just know that it's significant and it's not getting better. You know, the Me Too movement and all of this attention to sexual assault in other contexts has not has not moved the needle when it comes to militaries in, in any of these cases. Well, that gets to a measurement problem, which is when the Minister of Defense, National Defense Donat is the faces in a big way, which is if you get more reports of sexual misconduct, of, of sexual assault, sexual, sexual harassment, does that mean there's more or does that mean that more people are reporting? That it's that one of the things that has changed in the past year, and this is parallels the Me Too movement in other areas, is that now people are listening. And so people who've been who survived sexual uh, assault, sexual harassment, might be more willing to call up Mercedes Stevenson and get in line to talk about what has happened to them. Or with the settlement, with the deadline coming up, that more people are filing to be part of that class action lawsuit against the Canadian Armed Forces because the people are listening and willing to, to listen to their stories. So does that mean that you know, when we get more numbers, that means things are getting better or getting worse. And I think the answer is, I have no idea, but I could easily imagine that Minister of National Defense and on does lots of great things. And, you know, a year into her term, there's yet more reports of sexual misconduct, sexual assault, sexual harassment. And it may not be that there's more, maybe there that there's less, but really hard to measure success. But of course, that's uh, something the military is familiar with. Since it's also hard to measure success in a counterinsurgency campaign. So, but there is this dynamic. I just don't know how to make sense of it. 
That's why you should ask me a question because I'm the expert. <laughs> so I'm, asking you, I'm asking you the question. How do you measure this stuff? Okay. I didn't hear the question. I was just listening. No, you're right. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. You're right. I, I think there is that argument that, look, it's just a problem that isn't getting worse, but we're, we're getting better at collecting data. I, I think in the U.S. case, that's certainly been the argument because cases have gone up dramatically. And there's also been some speculation from scholars that it's actually, particularly during the Trump administration, that there was kind of a gender blowback situation where service members in an environment where you had a misogynist president felt emboldened and that harassment and assaults actually went up because the general environment was sort of more permissive of misogyny. So you're right. There's no, there's always a, a gap. We, we, we definitely know that most victims don't report. That hasn't mm-hmm. changed. Yeah. You know, 80% of victims don't report. We don't always know why they don't report. That can change over time. And when they do report, we don't know what motivates them. Most service members that have been interviewed that report, it's not about their individual case. It's often when they see a perpetrator becoming a serial perpetrator sure. and they realize it's going to happen to other people. So I think that, you know, the, the class action suits can be an opportunity for victims to come forward, but mm. it is very hard to measure. And unless we talk to service members, and that's where anonymous surveys can be so helpful, you know, mm. we can actually ask service members these questions, you know, why, if you didn't report, why didn't you report? Mm-hmm. But unless we collect that data anonymously, we really are sort of just like, you know, speculating mm-hmm. and trying to measure this gap between incidents versus uh, what we know is underreporting. Your previous book, Beyond Band of Brothers, I was assigned reading in my class, uh, for my seminal oh, class, thanks. and it was super helpful for thinking about these issues, even as I'm a huge fan of the TV show. So it had to be questioned my, my fandom of the TV show. <laughs> you know, it's enticing. Band of Brothers is enticing. I mean, but you can't, it's very hard to think of any good war movies that don't revolve around some version of the Band of Brothers myth. Well, absolutely. And it's funny, though, because now when I read stuff about the military and I see people referring to their men, I actually kind of go, huh. And it's, you know, because we're only now getting to the point where there are women in those units. It used to be those, there were, you know, World War II, obviously, there were no million in these units. But now, you know, when you read stories about Afghanistan, you're like, okay, we're talking about men. Were there any women in that unit? And in some places there were in Kandahar, there were in, I'm reading Wesley Morgan's book about the Pesh Valley. And clearly there are no women in, in these ranger units that were wandering through this valley, getting themselves uh, all messed up. And so, but it's, your book is having an impact on on my culture anyway. <laughs> and I think other people read it because we start asking, where are the women in all? this stuff and how does a male only culture what does that mean i start noticing the pronouns that are being used and Mm -hmm. and it makes a difference in terms of how i start thinking about the larger context so i look forward to your next book me too no pressure no pressure (laughs) it doesn't have to come out tomorrow uh, uh, it will not come out tomorrow. I wish it's, yeah, it's plugging along. Maybe we should have some sort of like motivate each other to finish our books concurrently somehow. Well, conversations like this help. Yes, true. And I'll look forward to talking to you more about your, your, your book project when I see you in Ottawa in a couple of weeks at the year ahead. Part of a panel that was moderate, it'll be moderated by our, our friend, Stephanie Van Lackey, and we'll have a couple other sharp people talking about the issue of culture change, uh, which is not going to be solved anytime soon, but does require expert voices like yours to be part of the conversation. So thanks for taking time to talk about Rhythm today and good luck managing life out there in the West now that you're an island again, really an island with uh, the natural <laughs> disaster that is isolating Vancouver from everything else. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm looking forward to the event. I'm looking forward to seeing you and others in person after a long time. So that's going to be great as well. Terrific.
Take care. Take care. Bye. For this week's R&R segment, I have three different video things. I know I'm not catching up on my reading. This is a grading season, so I'm not going to be reading too many books uh, until the new year, or at least not until the end of the semester. Uh, although one of the things I would recommend to watch has some books attached to it, which is Hawkeye. Now, listeners of this podcast will not be surprised that I'm recommending a Marvel show, but Hawkeye has really been quite delightful. I expect it to continue to be delightful. It's been lighter with more humor than some of the other offerings of late. And it's got a good action. And I think it's got a really interesting future ahead of itself. It's based on a series of Hawkeye comic books. Uh, they're stealing or borrowing or building from a particular batch. And that batch is hilarious. I really enjoyed what, reading that. One of the episodes in the comic books is told entirely from the perspective of the pizza dog. And I don't know if they're going to try to do that in the, uh, in the show. I doubt it. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing, which is a complete surprise to me, was Pig. I thought it would be a really trashy Nick Cage movie about a man engaging in lots of violence after his pig gets stolen, a la John Wick and, and John Wick's dog in the first John Wick movie. But no, it's more than that. It's actually an exploration of loss and mourning and grief as a man whose truffle pig gets stolen, and then he has to try to find his pig. So it has Nick Cage as sort of um, somebody who's become a hermit, living in the woods, searching for truffles living on his own, having to go into the city to search for whoever stole his pig. And so the concept is hilarious. The execution is actually really interesting and, and delightful. And if you're a foodie, and they'll be even more so. And the third is a documentary on Disney Plus, Get Back, which is about the Get Back album, the effort by the Beatles to put together an album and a show within 14 days, essentially. So the first third, the first episode covers the first you know, several days of this effort where they're, they're building an album from scratch, more or less. And uh, bits of it have gone viral. There's parts showing Paul McCartney figuring out the song Get Back in basically a minute, you know, stunned audiences. And I think there's going to be a lot more revelations ahead. As I said, I'm about a, one episode into it and I've got much more to watch. But I think that's an interesting thing to capture the actual making of a Beatles album. The music still is so good. For The first part of the first episode just has sort of the evolution of the Beatles and you're hearing all these great songs and it reminds you they just pushed out so much fantastic music that holds up. Anyway, so that's what I recommend. Hawkeye, Pig, and the Beatles, the Get Back documentary on Disney+. Plus. Be well, good luck managing the latest wave and the latest variants, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm.